Hey guys, Danny here, Editorial Director of Courier. You're listening to The Courier Weekly, a podcast all about working better and living smarter. This week I'm with Julie Dean, founder of the Cambridge Satchel Company, a humble UK-based bag brand that you probably know of and that in the past decade defied the odds and became one of those rare phenomenons, an absolutely huge success story. I first met and interviewed Julie years ago, and in case you don't know the story, it's become a bit legendary. Here's the nutshell version. Back in 2008, Julie was living in a village outside of Cambridge and was looking for a way to pay for extremely expensive private school fees for her young kids. She had saved up 600 pounds and was basically looking for a way to turn that 600 into 24,000. The best idea she had was to create durable leather satchels, the old school types, something she said that Harry and Hermione would have worn at Hogwarts. Well, she and her mother launched a company around that idea from their kitchen table, and the rest was history. Orders flooded in around the world. It became a sensation in the fashion industry, a cult favorite for editors, bloggers, models, and magazines. Julie was featured in a TV advertisement for Google. She met the Queen, was made an officer of the Order of the British Empire. She opened her own factory and her own physical store. By 2013, yearly sales were nearing 13 million pounds. And the following year, Cambridge Satchel raised $21 million from index ventures. But this story's been told tons and tons of times. We're not going to do that today. What hasn't been told as much is how things then started to go quite bad. Soon after that investment, sales began to decline. The designs weren't as inspired, and the wrong decisions were being made at the management level. This week, we're going to find out what went wrong exactly, and how Julie got the ship back on course. First, I asked Julie when she began to notice that the company was taking a turn for the worse. I think it was pretty easy to see it. I didn't need to listen to any voice of intuition because it was just the results. You know, we were making loss after loss after loss. And having been a business that was profitable every single month, to see these losses come through, that that was really unnerving and something that hadn't seen, was a little bit prepared for because after you have a big investment, obviously, suddenly you move forward and make a lot of new hires that are quite big hires and and those hires make hires. So your whole overhead base leapfrogs forward. It's an uncomfortable feeling for somebody who'd founded something on the basis of never having any debt to sort of see that. And it was a feeling also of disconnection. I've spoken to lots of people who've had investment, and I think that this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon that can happen, where the founder almost sort of starts questioning, it is this imposter syndrome. You know, suddenly you've got these incredible people who've worked in 100 million turnover companies, and they've done all this before, and they've scaled before, and they've been on this journey before. And I hadn't, you know, Cambridge Satchel was it for me. This is the only thing that I know. And so, whereas now I look at it, and I think, this is the only thing I know, I'm not polluted by seeing different ways of doing it, more conventional ways of doing it. And that gave me an advantage and an edge. At the time, it very much felt like take a step back and listen to them because they know what they're doing. Now I can look back and think each of those people, they were very talented, but they had come from much bigger businesses where there is a much larger support structure around. We had got where we got by doing things very differently. And that was us. It just didn't feel right. And I felt very disconnected. 
When you say these people, do you mean the venture capitalists you brought on? Do you mean outside advisors? Do you no, mean your because own the index team? are a great investor. But at the end of the day, it's the founder that is still taking responsibility and running the business. And you might be introduced to, oh, these are the recruiters we use and these are the hires that we suggest you make. But you sort of follow that advice. And it was the C-suite, this huge influx of people that were very experienced and then the hires that each one of them made. And for a small business, then we had grown very organically. And and when we take someone on, I'd be spending a lot of time with them. They'd get to know the tone of voice of the business and how we do things and the character. And you can't do that when all of a sudden you have more people joining than there are already existing in the business. So we had this thing of there was a London office and a Cambridge office. And that's really hard to manage as well. So, you know, all of those things together were just too much to make sure that the character of the brand stayed intact and that things were done in a way that would have been in line with the way that we'd always done things. So the decline in sales and, you know, I've read that, you know, when you started noticing problems, I mean, for instance, in 2013, you were doing almost 13 million pounds in sales the next year dropped to 10 million, and then the following year dropped to 7.5 million. That was a symptom of all these underlying problems, part of which were bad advice, growing pains, organizational problems that you've been talking about. Our product wasn't good enough. You know, it really wasn't. We had always been known for our color. We're a very sort of bold and optimistic brand. Our colors were like the the poster paint colors that you have as children. And, and that's a joyful experience to go into a store that is just filled with that much colors, really uplifting and fun. And even if you still end up buying a black one, a chestnut one or an oxblood one, you know, you've been surrounded by this is the feel of the brand. One of the the differences when the size of the team grew was, oh, now we're going to subscribe to these trend forecasters. And, And when you have a trend forecaster, then all of a sudden you're going to have colors that have been chosen by somebody else, you know, and you're also going to have the same colors as every other shop on the high street has. Right. It's like, what's doing well at Topshop? Let's copy that. Exactly. Let's just have exactly. And I'd look at some of these trends and I'd think, my God, next year looks like it must be a really miserable year because if these are the colors we're all going to be wearing, this is going to be really, really miserable. We'd never done it like that. Whereas you should be leading the trends. You should be the tip of the spear creating the trends, not copying the trends that might become popular. And now, you know, I've been through that and I know that, well, that might be the trend that works for lots of other brands. It doesn't work for us. We have to stay with what we look at and just makes us feel really happy and and the colors that we love because that's what we're known for. That's what we've always been known for. What about your management during those years? Because I know that you took a bit of a step back from the day-to-day running of the company for a bit, which you've later said was probably a mistake. It was a mistake because it was hard to know exactly where my place was. You know, when you're the sort of the, the founder and then suddenly you have somebody in who's an expert in marketing and you've got a CFO, you've got a CTO, you've got... You remember... I coded the first website and I'm also qualified as a chartered accountant. I always did the books. You know, I had my fingers so deeply in all of these pies. And you drew the logo. Yes, I did the logo. You know, I did all of this stuff. And 
I took the photographs of the, the product and my mother held a white sheet behind them and we loaded them up. You know, it was all done like that. And suddenly you think, well, hang on, this is now feeling like a very grown up place with all these experts in what exactly is my role in this? That was a tricky time. I think that I always felt very connected to the customers, to the people that followed the brand, even if they hadn't bought yet, they were very engaged on social and I was always chatting to them. But again, that wasn't then my area. So I got pushed mainly into the magazine interviews and, you know, the outward facing kind of PR, but not in the the operations and the day to day and doing customer service emails in the evening when actually I'd end up just chatting to a customer because the customers that have problems are often the ones that become your most loyal customers because they see that it's really important to you to sort it out. So did you wake up one day in 2016 and just say, right, time for a change, I'm going to clean house? Yeah, I just thought I can't do this anymore because, you know, this brand is literally like another child to me. I'd brought it up from nothing. I'd loved it, taking really good care of it and then did what I thought was best for it, but it wasn't. And, you know, enough's enough. So it was a bit of a swoop of the angel of death for lots of the C-suite and house was cleaned up and the overhead was brought down. The proverbial red wedding moment. It was. That's exactly what it was, you know, and there wasn't a single stone that didn't get looked under. And the more I looked, the more I just thought, you know, and product, too many different types of things that were not special enough. You know, every bag that we had done had a story. It was a historical piece that had been brought to life and evolved slightly in, you know, in bringing colours in it had never been seen before. But had stayed true to the wonderful piece that it was. Every bag had this provenance, this incredible story. And then suddenly we were coming out with bags that I wouldn't have worn, you know, I wouldn't have bought. And so that became the rule. It's like if I wouldn't buy it for that price and wear it, we're not having it. You know, that's got to be the filter. I mean, I'm trying to draw some lessons here because... On the one hand, there's a really good lesson that, you know, you can't lose your authenticity because that's what built you and made you who you are. On the other hand, you know, if you're growing a company to be a $100 million, billion dollar fashion brand, well, you're going to have to give up control and kind of appoint deputies to do things. So how do you find that balance to make it work? So I think that what I found through the sort of the cutting right back and then the growing and seeing that as we were growing, things were going very well again. That gave me the confidence to think, yes, I am on the right track. And gradually, I need to get back to having all of those people, to having that team. But it needs to be gradual. It cannot be overnight. And you do. It's quite true. You know, you do learn so much more when things go wrong. And so I felt like I'd learned so many lessons. You know, the next time we're doing a hire, I'm going to spend a lot of time with that person before they get hired so that I know they know exactly what the brand is. They're totally behind that. And you do it bit by bit. You can't, or at least we couldn't, take that massive step all at once and get completely swamped. And also the things that our Instagram, where the Cambridge Satchel Company, our Instagram became something that never had 
images of Cambridge. Our photo shoots weren't taking place in Cambridge. You know, everything was London-based and we, we had an unreasonable number of just bags against coloured doors and bags against a cappuccino and, I don't know, froth art or whatever it is that, that, that was a thing at that time. And Overhead shots of flat whites. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. Why would this be interesting to anybody? Because what I've really realised, you know, my love of the brand is that the people that tend to buy bags that have a history and a story are really interesting people. You know, they're not people who just want to go out and buy labels or collect loads of things and dispose of them. These are are people that are intrigued by the story and they think, oh my gosh, I remember seeing one of those back in, you know, whenever. They buy into that. That's who we are as a brand. And nobody else is going to fully understand that. So until someone has the tone of voice, I can't hand something over to them. I'll do it and then recruit and stand by their side and then become a shadow and then sort of just check in regularly when I feel confident that they have got the exact right tone of voice. I'm really in no rush to do that. You've mentioned confidence a couple times and, you know, people looking at you objectively would be like, oh, you know, holy shit, how did this person do what she did, build this giant company, superstar, inspiration, get all these awards, grow around the world. And yet, you know, did you lose some of your confidence when you saw declining sales year after year and said, shit, do I know what I'm doing? Did you feel like an imposter or something like that? I think when I sort of saw them going down, I felt a little bit vindicated. You know, it was never right to do some of those things. It was never right to do those manky, sad looking colors. You know, that was never right. And I knew it wasn't right. And yet I felt that I had to give people a chance to show their kind of brilliance, but it wasn't right for the brand. So it didn't work out. It actually gave you confidence because you realized, oh, actually, I was right the whole time. I wanted to do it different. You know, I should have listened to that voice that was saying that doesn't feel right. And so many times now, you know, if, if you hear that voice in the early days, just after you've hired someone and it's saying, this person isn't right. You need to listen to that voice. But it's hard to listen to that voice when suddenly you've had a big investment from people who really know what they're doing. A C-suite comes in, people are recruited that have done fantastic things and really know way more about their area than I ever did. However, that voice that says that might be right for you know, Michael Kors or, or somebody else. It's not right for Cambridge Satchel. We're a quirky brand and that's what we had going for us. And I needed to do just listen to that voice. When you see the sales going down and you see the overheads absolutely rocketing and you see the amount of stock of inventory that ties up so much cash you know, we had never done that. We'd always been very demand-led. You know, when something ran out, we'd make more of it. We were very simplistic. And we needed to go back to that. And at least there was no arguing with the numbers. You know, it was very clear that we needed to change. I want to talk about 
China, because China has played a huge role in just your brand story. You've gone to China as part of a trade delegation with the UK government. You sell quite a lot of bags in China. You just got some investment from a Hong Kong-based private equity firm, which I imagine has something to do with China strategy. So why China? Do they just love the bags and you decided, hey, let's double down where the demand is? What happened was Prince William visited China on the Festival of Creativity, and I was speaking in one of the marquees before he was he was due to go up. And on the way being sort of trotted across to this marquee, there was somebody that was with me and, and said, well, of course, you know that Cambridge is more famous in China than London. And I thought, oh, no, it's not. But, you know, nice of you to say that. But of course it isn't. And she looked at me and she said, yes, yes, because of the poem, you know, the poem. And I looked completely blankly at her and I said, I have no idea what you're talking about, what poem. And she said, oh, the poem that we learn at school, Farewell to Cambridge. And I thought, get out. This is either a real gift from God or somebody's winding me up. A really bad moment to be wound up because here I am heading to this big stage. and <laughs> Like the poem's called The Beauty of Cambridge Bags. Exactly. That's what I want to hear. I did my sort of my scripted speech and everything. And, and at the end of it all, I'd, this poem thing was still so much in my mind. I thought, I need to test it out. Talk about a high risk strategy. You know, this is where I'm going to choose to test it out. And so at the end of it all, I sort of, the hand shot in the air and I said, and so don't say farewell to Cambridge because Cambridge has come to China. And there was just the most warm response. And it was like a real recognition in the room. And I thought, this is fantastic. It could have gone completely the opposite way. It could have been like the thick of it where you said this and somebody was winding you up and like, it was just crickets. <laughs> it would have been it, the bindweed going out of the door and then I'm dragged off, <laughs> dragged off the stage. But no, thankfully it went. And so there is this awareness of Cambridge as a brand in China, which I was unaware of and I'm very thankful for. We've always seen a huge number of Chinese tourists that visit the shops, particularly in London and in Cambridge. And so it was very apparent that a China strategy had to be part of the plan. The more time I spent in China, the more I realized that I just didn't know enough about the differences in the way that people buy in China. I didn't know enough about Tmall Classic versus Tmall Global and WeChat and Weibo and Baidu. It, it, there was just so much to learn and take in. And we did a good job of getting started. But to try and do that from a place just outside Cambridge, that was never going to be the easiest one to manage. And so when it came time to have another investor take a chance on us, which I would say we were and we still are a much better investment now because of the experiences we'd gone through before. And, and I'm really happy to say that Index are still one of our investors and they've stuck by me, even though, you know, I, I didn't do things brilliantly well all the time. But the new investor I knew had to be a strategic investor and it made total sense to have someone who has a local knowledge. And so based in Hong Kong, not actually a Chinese group at all. It's a, a group, it's a very international group. But along with that came a complete blessing in, in the shape of somebody who's had experience in Asia with brands from America and brands from Britain 
And so a COO that really knew what he was doing. And so somebody that I could feel very happy working alongside and I could learn from and he could just let me do the things that I do best and he could do these things. And and I've spoken to Mark Parker now every single day, you know, for over a year at 8.30 in the morning to discuss what's happening and what we see the vision being and who we see the investors being and then who's part of the investment. And that's an example of if I'd had such great fits as hires after the index investment, we would be absolutely world dominating right now. (laughs) But at least this time, I know what I'm looking for. What's intrigued you the most about the Chinese market? What have you learned most about the Chinese market that you're like, oh, wow, if only I knew that when I started, or this is just a completely different way of doing things than, you know, they do it in the West? Yeah, I think it is the difference. It's the difference and realizing that, you know, this is where I really need some expertise. To sell effectively on Tmall, you have to have a great Tmall partner. And I don't know what to look for in a great Tmall partner. You know, and so I need someone who's done that before and who knows what the Tmall partner can do, what they can't do, and is local enough and speaks to them in their native language so that they know they're part of the team. You know, they feel very involved and very much a part of it rather than, oh, yes, we work on behalf of Cambridge Satchel, but they're so far away and they don't speak the right language and the time difference. Everything conspires and and can make that feel way too far outside of the group to be useful. Before you raise that money from that Hong Kong private equity firm, were you just yourself Googling around Tmall Global and kind of trying to figure it out yourself? As part of that trade delegation, it was when the UK signed the MOU with Alibaba. And so I met Jack Ma then. That's right. I read about that. You were doing like Tai Chi with Jack Ma or something like that. He invited me back to speak at a conference that that he held for women entrepreneurs in China. And And so through all of that, yes, I got to meet people who are incredibly helpful and incredibly knowledgeable, but I most of all got to see how different it was and how much I really didn't know. And so to do that properly, the Hong Kong base and the expertise that we've got in that local market are absolutely key. How has COVID been for Cambridge Satchel? Because you have some physical stores, physical stores obviously have been open and closed, open and closed. You have a brand that, you know, skews towards the luxury end of things and are people buying luxury items. So how's the past year been? It's been a memorable year. Our investment closed last December, December of 2019. And then we made a hire for head of e-com, head of digital, who joined us in February about a month before everybody went to remote working. So that was very, very difficult for her because there wasn't much of a run up to learn and meet the team and, and really get embedded in. We had had a plan to have a new website launch in the summertime. But then we opened Oxford in February, which closed in March. Trying to deal with all of those things. In an ideal world, you know, the virus would have given us another year before hitting and we'd have had our fantastic new website up and running and then we could have benefited from this sudden rush to shopping online. But we didn't have that benefit. But what we did have was a pared down 
structure already that meant that we could react to things very, very quickly. And so we had gone through that painful exercise of looking at every area and thinking, what is the excess here? We cut it out. And so we were in a good shape in that kind of position, at least. And we had also really addressed the problem of what is the product that we want to go forward with? And we weren't sitting on three million pounds of finished goods stock. So that was great because if we'd had that much cash tied up in a warehouse somewhere and no shops to sell it through and wholesale accounts, you know, dropping off left, right and centre, then that would have been problematic. But we didn't. We were very much in that sort of like lean space. Thank goodness. I like that British understatement, problematic. What does problematic mean? Would that have been like game over? No, because we don't do game over. That's somewhere that we're not going to go near. We're sidestepping the, the game over one. What <laughs> we could do is just stop and think, this is a time when it would be very easy to make knee-jerk reactions. and We absolutely are not doing that. We're going to think about how is it that we want to emerge from this? You know, what do we want to look like when we come out? And so we actually put back the website development and we spent the summer speaking to Mary Portis and her agency in London being grilled about who are we as a brand you know going back to basics what is the spirit of the brand because otherwise what could have easily happened is we could have got a new web developer and said to them, well, here's all our existing copy, here's all our existing stock, and here are all our existing photographs, and then been surprised when the new website looked like the old website. You know, that's a very sort of like, that's something that can happen. And so by taking that space and just thinking, this is the time when people are going to give you permission to make change, because everybody has to make change. So if you're going to accelerate the change to really stop and think, who do you want to be coming out of this? We want to be the Cambridge Satchel of the first three years of Cambridge Satchel. Who was that? You know, we'd gone to this point of, oh, before Christmas, okay, well, probably tell people that if they haven't ordered in November, we can't promise it to them for Christmas. Whereas in the first few years, I would say to people, look, I've got the bags here. If you want to drive to my house and buy it, you can come on Christmas Eve and you can have it. But otherwise, we're going to have to work out how we're going to get it to you, even if that means me driving and meeting you halfway, because that's kind of the spirit of the brand. And Right. So it's how do you keep that spirit alive? Exactly. And that's what we've been working on. And I think that's the most important thing. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Julie Dean from the Cambridge Satchel Company for this week's show. As ever, get in touch with any thoughts or feedback. I'm at daniel at couriermedia.co. The Curry Weekly is back again next Friday. We'll see you then.